Afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for being here. That's it's it's always a it's always an honor that you come, especially in California when it's cool, right? Because it's not. And God blessed us with even a little rain this week, which is amazing. But you know, I. Maybe it's just from being California. I see rain and I'm like, oh, it's getting better. We're not in such a drought. There's always somebody who's like, nah, it's never enough, right? It's never enough. But I know that like, especially for the nine o'clock in, in California, when there's, when there's um, cloud cover, like we just want to stay in because it's one of our, you know, six times during the year we get to eat oatmeal and then we get to have soup for lunch and then maybe like grilled cheese sandwiches for dinner. Like it's a moment where we can just kind of settle in and lean into the, to the cool. And then I am reminded by people all across the country that 75 is not cool, but it is for us. So anyway, thanks for being here. Um, <clears throat> so we're in this week four of this Christophany series. We're going through the Old Testament. And I have to tell you, um, I, I plan these series out months, months in advance. And um, sometimes when I get to certain weeks, I think, why? Why did I want to preach on this? And this week is one of those. Um, but there's a few things we got to do before we jump into the text. One of the things we have to recognize is we talk about Christophany or theophany. And if you're not familiar with those terms, that means a manifestation of God. And there's ways that it can happen. It can be a physical manifestation of God. It can be through vision. It can be through audible manifestations of God. But this idea of a theophany or a Christophany that we're calling it, we're kind of using that term, means that God breaks through. God shows up. And in that way, it also means this, that each Christophany is a miracle. Every time God shows up, it's a miracle. And I don't know what you feel about miracles. Not everybody likes miracles, right? There's a lot of different thoughts over the, over the millennia when it comes to miracles. And most of us have kind of the standard definition of miracles, which really comes from the philosopher Hume, Hume not Hume, Hume, um, that, that basically says miracles are a break in the physical and natural world. And so Hume postulized that it just can't be. There's just no such thing as a miracle. And that's, that school of thought has kind of carried on and carried through to modern philosophers, if you will, or we call them kind of militant atheists, Dawkins and Hitchens, which would say this, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence as well, right? So this is kind of the ongoing conversation. I know many of you are scientists, you work in this field of science, but you're still Christians, and so you wrestle with these types of things. We all do. This story today is a particular kind of theophany and a particular kind of miracle that is, is really interesting, which we'll get to in a second. I like what Augustine said, right? Augustine, writer in the, one of the church fathers writing in the fifth century, Right, he explicitly rejected the idea that miracles are contrary to nature. Holding instead, what he said is that they're contrary only to our knowledge of nature. Now that worked in the fifth century a little bit different than it does work in the 21st century, right? We know a few more things than they did in the fifth century. And so that, that statement may, be, may seem a little bit elementary to us, if you will. But I do like this quote from his, um, his writing, City of God. He says this, is not the universe itself a miracle, yet visible and, God, and of God's making? Nay, all the miracles done in this world are less than the world itself, the heaven and earth and all therein, yet God made them all, and after a manner that man cannot conceive or comprehend. 
Augustine doesn't argue that human understanding can't advance or that science is impossible, nor does he regard science and miracles as opposed to one another. Rather, he's highlighting the very nature of existence itself as a miracle. And so the questions you have to ask yourself as a person of faith is what do you believe about miracles? And you have to ask this question if you're going to accept not only the idea of Christophanies and Theophanies, but if you're going to accept the idea of the incarnation as a whole, God breaking through will always be a miracle. But this week's story will push your understanding even of miracles. If you don't like miracles, you're not going to like this story. If you don't like God breaking through, you're really not going to like this story. Right? This story almost reads, and I, I, I apologize for even using this term, but I feel like it's probably the best one. When we get to this story, you'll understand why. This almost reads like a fairy tale in some respect, right? And, and people like fairy tales. We all like fairy tales. We all like the marvelous and we like the, the, the fantastic and the supernatural. And if you don't believe me, ask this question. Why does everyone love Marvel movies right now? Maybe it's because they're the only movies that are being released and they release them like every other day it feels like. And I think they cheaped out, honestly. Like, I think, I think they were like, none of this makes sense, but there's different universes, so it all makes sense. And we just all go, oh, yeah, multiverse. Oh, yeah. Okay. Spider-Man's a pig? That makes sense now. Like, I, I don't know. Anyway, I digress. But do we need miracles? I mean, do we need miracles to believe in God? Maybe we don't. Maybe we do. I don't think miracles always are convincing of people. I always go back to Egypt and the pillar of smoke and pillar of fire. Feels like a pretty big miracle. Still denied God at one point. Um, but I think, I think maybe we do, right? I think maybe we do to understand the divine. And, and maybe we need miracles to understand that we don't understand everything and that we're going to live in some mystery and we're going to live in some gaps in understanding and that's where faith is really exploding in our lives and that's probably okay. Just for the record, 72% of people in America believe in miracles. 72%, that's pretty high. 59% in, in the UK, which is a surprise to me, actually. 59% of people actually believe in miracles. Even people who don't necessarily say they believe in God believe in miracles. That's fascinating, isn't it? I'm like, well, where do those come from? Like, I don't know. It's a mystery. I'm like, maybe God. They're like, probably not. Well, okay. Um, we seem to need miracles, not only to understand God, but to think of the very nature of our own existence. But, but every Christophany shows up in a certain way. So how is every Christophany a miracle? There's a few things that happen in these Christophanies. First of all, it is God-initiated. Every Christophany comes from God. It doesn't come from people begging, begging for God to show up. It's God just showing up right? We don't initiate these interactions. God just decides he's going to be at a place at a time, and that's when he's going to be there. And by the way, when he shows up, there's a declaration of deity. God lets us know that he is God, whether it's by touching a hip or giving a blessing or having a particular kind of knowledge, you know it is God, no question, right? A bush that burns but doesn't burn, that's unusual. And so we know God shows up. And in the midst of that, understanding his divinity, we understand that there's miraculous actions or knowledge, right? Something big happens, or at least is known. It's not business as usual when God shows up. It's a big deal. Calling out that Abram and Sarah will have a child, stories like this. God hearing the prayers of his people in Egypt, that's knowledge that he has that he shouldn't necessarily have unless he is God. 
beautifully, it's often accompanied by comforting statements because that seems to happen. When God shows up, people freak out a little bit. And so he's like, hey, calm down. It's okay. I still love you. Like, it's okay. We're not going to, you're not going to die today. Um, You'll be fine, right? (laughs) And in theophanies, ultimately, worship of God is a result. And sometimes it's not then, right? Sometimes it takes a little while in the narrative for them to finally come to the place where they're going to worship God. Um, Even in the story today, which I think I've mentioned it, but today's story is a little bit different, right? So if you've been following along in the series guide, you know what story I'm talking about. If you don't, I don't know why you're not, because you should be. We give you all that material so you can study, but it's okay. I'm not judging harshly. But this story is taken from Numbers chapter 22. And it's a big, long story. We're going to jump in about verse 22, so well along in the story. But what is happening is that um, Israel is coming into the promised land. And as you know, that's a pretty messy immigration they took, right? They came into the promised land, and they destroyed a lot, and there was a lot of problems. And so what we've got is we've got Balak, the Moabite king, getting pretty concerned that he was about to be replaced And not just him, his whole nation was about to be replaced. And so he reaches out to the Midianite elders, it says, and basically says, we got to do something about this. In fact, jumping in real quick, chapter 22, verse 4, the king of Moab said to the elders of Midian, this mob will devour everything in its sight, like an ox devours grass in the field. Now, I don't know if you know this, but when oxen go to a field, they devour all the grass. That is what I've discerned from this text because I don't know much about oxen, but apparently they eat a lot of food. So he's worried, right? That's the metaphor. He's worried. So what did they do? They sent a messenger to Balaam. Actually, they sent a group of messengers, because this was an official emissaries were going there, to Balaam, son of Beor, who was living in his native land of Pethor, near the Euphrates River. His message said, look, a vast horde of people have arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are threatening me. Clearly, they're concerned. They're about to be taken over. Now, who's Balaam, right? Balaam's just some random guy. Well, what Balaam was, was a prophet for hire, right? Which, by the way, this was not uncommon. And just for a little bit more context, they didn't send the emissaries once. They actually had to send the emissaries three times. Because at first, and this is fascinating, Balaam actually heard a word from God saying, you better not go. And so he goes, yeah, okay, I'm not going to go. And then they come a second time, I'm not going to go, come a third time. God finally actually accommodates because he knows Balaam's going to go because Balaam's going to get paid for this. He's a prophet for hire. And after a while, they just kept offering enough. So he's like, all right. And God's like, fine, go. But I'm not happy about it. Um, God's like a really great GPS sometimes. You know that, right? You make a wrong turn, he's going to readjust and have to work with you a little bit. And so, you know, he's going to do that. Anyway, so the third time, I will say this. This prophet for hire, not super uncommon, right? Ancient Near Eastern texts recount 
you know, the power of priests and prophets to discern, intervene, even manipulate the gods through means of, you know, sacrificial rituals, augury they would call it, oral pronouncements of blessing and curses. And by the way, we use the term prophet here and it doesn't feel right because we're used to biblical prophets, right? Maybe a better, a better term would be a sorcerer or magician, right? Maybe that would make a little more sense in our context, but it's a, um, in a biblical term, they're using the idea of prophet, right? So now we're jumping in as Balaam is leaving with a couple people to go and curse Israel. And uh, we jump in at verse 22. It says this, but God was angry that Balaam was going. Even though God was like, fine, go. He wasn't happy about it. So he sent an angel of the Lord to stand in the road and to block the way as Balaam and his two servants were riding along. Are you ready? Because it's about to get a little weird. Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord. His donkey. Now, not him. And I know you know that, but it's oftentimes we read this text and we don't think about the fact that the donkey's seen God and he's not seeing God. How come Balaam's not seeing God? We don't actually know at this point. But we know that the donkey sees the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword. So that's nerve-wracking. So he sees him, the donkey bolted off the road into the field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back into the road. I'm not a fan of this story. This was Monday, me pulling this up in the series guide, thinking, Lord, why did you lead me here? And why did I listen to you? I don't want to preach this because I don't really understand this text. I don't really know what's going on here. But this is what's going on. Sees the angel of the Lord. Donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Bolts off. Was he scared or did he know something? He, he bolts off. Balaam, which apparently you could do. There was a culture of violence to animals at this point. He beats him. Nobody seems to have that big of a problem with it. Well, later on they will. Then the angel of the Lord stood a place. So now the angel moves, right? So they get around him. Angel moves, stood a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. Vineyard walls are a little high, right? Made out of brick or stone. So now it's narrowing. He's standing at the middle. And this donkey is still trying to figure out what to do, right? He's creating a traffic jam. So the donkey saw the angel of the Lord try to squeeze by and it crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So what did he do? He beat the donkey again. By the way, I don't know, how many of you, does anybody here ride donkeys? I mean, that's a weird question, isn't it? Oddly, it's not as weird a question in Redlands and in Grand Terrace in Ritchie Canyon. If you live out there, you can ride all the donkeys you want because there's donkeys all over the place. Um, And for fun, what a wonderful Sabbath afternoon activity. Get yourself one of those donkeys, ride it, see how it goes. Um, So I don't have a lot of experience riding donkeys, but growing up, we got to go to Greece quite often with my dad's tours. And when you get to the island of Santorini, um, there's two ways to get up to to the kind of village of Santorini. One is to take the tram, and the other way to get up is to actually get on a donkey, and they have these kind of donkey trains, they call them. You get on a donkey, and a Greek man will kind of run up with you, and you do these switchbacks for about a half a mile, I think, all the way up to the top. And it's pretty steep, and it's a little nerve racking. But we always used to do it because it was so cool, right? We jump on these donkeys and we go up and we pay the guy when we got to the top. He'd, he'd charge us something at the bottom. Halfway through, he would up the price. 
which was brilliant because we were a captive audience at that point. And by the way, there are donkeys everywhere going up and down this thing like crazy. It's not that big. It's a little frightening. But we used to do it all the time. It was really great. Um, started doing that when I was like seven or eight years old. By the time I got to 12 or 13, I was a little bored of it. They had built the tram at that point. And um, we usually just would walk down, which is a little, little, a little, a little scary, but we would just walk down. Um, and this one time a guy says, hey, do you want to ride a donkey down? And I'm 12 or 13. And I'm like, oh, an adventurous spirit. That'll be great. And my dad's like, nah, we're not doing that. And I was like, dad, come on. And he's like, well, I'm not doing it. If you want to do it, go ahead. So at 12 years old, my dad sticks me on a donkey with some random Greek dude. The truth is there's nowhere else to go. Like you're going to end up at the bottom. My dad's like, I'll see you at the bottom. So this is what the guy does. The guy puts me on the donkey and then he takes a switch and hits the donkey's butt. And that donkey starts running downhill as fast as it can go on these switchbacks where there's donkeys coming up and donkeys coming down. And I'm just like, and it's running me into the wall. So when I read this, right, it tried to squeeze by and crush Balaam's foot against the wall. I'm like, Balaam, man, I've been there. I know what, I didn't get up and beat the donkey. I wasn't going to do that. But that donkey ran. It was the worst, most terrifying seven and a half minutes of my life. Just this 12-year-old kid, screaming the whole way down. They were laughing. They thought it was fun. The funny part was the donkey ran way faster than the guy who was watching the donkey. So I was literally, it was me and the donkey. We were in it to win it. And um, we got to the end of my dad's just got this huge grin on his face. Like, how was that? I was like, shut up. Sorry, I digress. You, you didn't need to hear that much story. But Balaam's getting angry now, right? Why not? This donkey's acting strangely. By the way, he's, he's had this donkey for a while. So the angel of the Lord moves again. Moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by. And this is where things get serious because there's no way around. And um, I was thinking, as I was studying this, I was thinking about it. And sometimes, sometimes that's kind of how it feels with God. Right? I don't know. Do you ever feel like there is just no way around Jesus? Like you're just going to get there. Like all roads lead to Jesus. In ancient Rome, they used to say all roads lead to Rome because they built the roads and they all eventually would lead to Rome. Sometimes it feels in our life that we are constantly being brought back and all roads just lead to Jesus. But when we begin to accept this, we can begin to live in a different way. Knowing that these paths we choose are ultimately going to lead us to Jesus. And we can stop worrying about the destination all the time and know that we will always end up in the arms of a loving Savior. Now, I know this is not the best parallel because in this story, that loving Savior happens to have a sword, so sorry about that. But I just like the way that feels. So, this time when the donkey saw the angel, it didn't have anywhere to go, so it just laid down. Right? I, have any of you been walking your dog and your dog decides, mm, that's it? I'm not interested in going anymore. I've got two Italian greyhounds, which are relatively diminutive dogs, right? They're relatively small. One's 11 pounds, very cute, very skinny, very dainty. One's like 25 pounds. She's a fatso. But, um, but this 11-pound one, when I walk with Vespa, Vespa like prances. It's very sweet. And when she's done, she just sits down. I'm a big dude. I can't get that dog to move. Like the only thing I can do is pick that dog up and carry her. And then I look like that guy in your neighborhood who's taking too much care of his dog. You know, the one who sometimes walks around with a little pram, like, like I, you know, you, hate, you make so much fun of that guy. You're like, because seriously, it's a dog. That dog can walk. And I'm like, 
Well, she won't walk anymore. What am I supposed to do? It's just ridiculous. Well, the donkey's like, no, nah, all right, I'm good. I sits down, right? It lay down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. So this seemed to be a, a bit more, right? He's got a staff now, right? So he beats him. At this point in the story, if you're studying online and you get to a page that has an article about this and you begin to look at the comments, at this part of the story, the comments go from, this is interesting, to, I don't know why you would believe this, because this is the next phrase. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. And if you, like me, grew up with modern culture around you, you have a hard time seeing that phrase and not thinking about Shrek. <laughs> and I ruin this text for you forever. Every time you pull that up, you're going to be like, ah, I can't hear Eddie Murphy's voice. It's not, it's not a holy moment anymore. And I get that. Like, I, I apologize, but... Gave the donkey the ability to speak. And the donkey says something really interesting. The donkey doesn't say like, you know, stop beating me. The donkey says, what have I done to you that deserves beating me three times? Right? What, like, why are you doing this? And Balaam's like, you made me look like a fool, man. And then he says something really fascinating. This is something that hit me particularly this week. And so you're going to have to stay with me on this. Maybe not everybody's going to like what I have to say here, but, but this to me... This hit me. He said, if I had a sword, I would kill you. And particularly this week, this phrase hit me. Because I know it was a long time ago in the news cycle of our world today. But seven days ago, there was a shooting in Buffalo. And there was a shooting in Orange County. And we've had more shootings since then. And listen... This, this sermon has already gone out to all the different campuses. It's been streamed a few times. I've already gotten some emails and stuff, people saying, I wish you wouldn't be political and this and that. This is what I believe. I believe in America, we have a culture of violence that is insidious and horrible. And I think both sides can agree on that, right? The way we solve that problem may be very different in the way that you view your world and, and that sort of thing. And, and certainly the Second Amendment and all that kind of thing. And, and we're going to you know, how you deal with that is, is how you deal with that. But th there was a study done about 15 years ago. Um, a psychologist, his last name is Rapier, I believe. It's French and I never say it correctly and I'm not going to try his first name. But he was a psychologist who actually worked with ad agencies to figure out what the culture code, and that's the name of the book, the culture code, what the culture code was for different groups of people for different things so that they could sell better. They, these companies could sell better. And so they, they said like, what's the culture code for food? If we're just selling food in France, what is the culture code? And you know what the culture code for food in France is? It's love. When, French, when the French think of food, they think of love because that's how you take care of your family. When you're in love with someone, you have wonderful meals. Isn't that beautiful? That's great. Well, he did a lot of different things. Super, super interesting things. Like for instance, when the, when the, when the Jeep, um, when the Jeep Wrangler changed their, changed their headlights to square headlights in the early 80s, they stopped selling in Europe almost completely. Nobody wanted these Jeeps anymore, which was weird because they were pretty pretty popular. And they couldn't figure out why. So this gentleman does the research and you know what he realized? He realized that because they weren't round anymore, 
It stopped reminding Europe of um, when, America, when the American allies came in and helped stop World War II. And so when they changed it to square, they didn't want it anymore because it didn't recognize with their culture. It didn't connect with their culture anymore because they said, and they, they found this out again and again, that those round circles on the Willie's Jeeps in the 40s reminded them of the Calvary coming and horses. Isn't that fascinating? It's such a weird thing, right? Well, obviously he does a lot of research. You know what happens when he gets to America? He keeps dead ending in violence. And so he asked questions, what does this mean? And it would end up violence. You know what the one that was most shocking to me? When Americans think of sex, the culture code for sex in America is violence. We have a culture of violence that is a problem. And if this text says anything, if I had a sword, I would kill you. We have a really difficult stew that we make in America, right? It's a culture of violence and you add to that racism you add to that poverty, you add to that misinformation, and then you add to that access. And what you see is over 4,000 mass shootings in the last 12 years. 4,000 mass shootings. Now again, I know that there are different ways that we think about how we're gonna fix this. But I think as Christians, we have to admit that this happens far too often. Far too often. And, and this week we were sitting in staff meeting and we're talking about, okay, how are we going to respond? Because we need to respond because, you know, what have we done? We've done, you know, we've done moments of silence. We've done remembrance things. And, and it just dawned on me like we're running out of moments of silence. And it's exhausting more than that. It's terrifying. And we too often live in a world where we think that, you know, if violence isn't the answer, protection from violence will be. Again, a lot of different ways you're going to think about how to deal with this. But I believe in something. I believe that Christ called us to change culture as Christians. That Christ called us to be in the world, because he says this. I didn't, I didn't you know, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but you keep them safe within the world. God has called us to the world to be agents of peace, to be agents of hope, to be agents of compassion, to be agents of justice, to be, a, to be all these things. And we have to be part of changing the world for Christ because I believe Christ changes culture. And I think he's going to do that through us. And so, so regardless of how you think it's got to be done, in your own capacity, with your own agency as a Christian whether you own guns or not or believe everybody should have them or not, you have to be doing something so that those guns can be gaining dust on your shelves so that we don't have to use them. And I got to tell you, community is a huge point, part of this. If that shooter from Buffalo had a community of belonging rather than a community that he found online, maybe this wouldn't have happened. I don't know. I don't know. But maybe... So if we're gonna, if we're gonna assent to the fact that we live in this culture, at what point are we as Christians called to change it? I believe it's right now. And I believe we change that through a lot of different ways. And again, there's, there's you know, the continuum's long on this and not without debate, if you know. In your capacity, in the way God is calling you to, you must be part of the culture change that is needed in this world. You must be. We have to be. Let's go back to the text, shall we? 
The donkey says something fascinating. He goes, I'm the same donkey you've ridden your whole life. Have I ever done anything like this before? That's a weird conversation, right? He's like, I was running off the road. I was sitting down. Why do you think I was doing that? Maybe you should have been listening to what I was doing. I mean, I couldn't talk at the time. <laughs> like, I, f- I always feel like this is a paraphrase of a conversation that must have been fascinating, right? But I, I ran off the road, and then I, and then I tried to get around. I, you can't see what I see. By the way, in my opinion, this is a huge call to listen to the voices in your community that are speaking to you. Sometimes there's a Christophany that's happening right beside you, but you can't see it. And so sometimes you've got to listen to the person next to you who, who has your best interest in mind. Who, this donkey actually had Balaam's best interest in mind. He knew that if he went to that, if he went to that angel, if he went to that theophany right there, there was going to be a problem because he saw the sword. Then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. So this is the moment we see Balaam, who's not a believer, not a part of Israel, in fact, was sent to curse Israel. He lays down and he recognizes deity. He recognizes divinity. Again, read the rest of the story. It's a weird story. It goes on and it's not, like this is not a perfect ribbon wrap and it's all done. But at this part of the story, he recognized and he laid down. The angel continues to have a conversation with him. Why'd you do this? You didn't need to do this. You're so stubborn. You don't listen to me anymore. But I think about it and I think, man, how many times in my life have I been so, so purposeful, so going where I think I need to go and the people around me who care about me, who I'm accountable to, have said, hey, that's maybe not the direction you should go. Don't, maybe, maybe come back, step away from that ledge. And I'm like, nah, forget it. We need to make sure that we're listening to the voices in our life because they may be having Christophanies that we don't have. And we may need to listen to them and realize, hey, that's all right. Because what I never want to do is I never want to, I never want to have my eyes open and realize they had been talking to me the whole time. By the way, don't forget, this wasn't the first time Balaam heard from God. In the story, God had said, don't go there. But Balaam was serious about going there. So God accommodated, said, fine, if you're going to go there, you're not going to curse my people. And by the way, if you read the oracles of Balaam after this, it feels like he's trying to say, I put a curse on Israel, but all he can keep saying is, I put a blessing on them. And it makes the king of Moab so angry. He makes him so mad because he's like, listen, I brought you to curse them. And he said, I cannot curse what God has not cursed. So I'm not going to. So I think that we need to listen to the voices in our lives. We need to be part of the change that God is calling us to do in the world. I think that's important. I think too often we have a tendency to think like this faith of ours is just about heaven. But this faith of ours calls us to some real powerful advocacy for peace and love and hope and compassion in the world today. And I'm not okay waking up every morning just trying to figure out where the next bit of violence happened. I don't want to live my life that way. I don't want to leave that world to my kids. And I don't think any of you do either. So God is calling us to love and to love well. But to love and to love well is not just to protect a certain position that we have. To love and to love well means to actually care for people 
to reach out to people, to love people, and to be engaged in changing the culture that we know is broken. It's why we sought Jesus in the first place. Listen to the voices around us, even if they're coming from a donkey. God spoke through a donkey, and he's been speaking through donkeys ever since. So if God can use that, God can use me, God can use you. And we can be part of what God is calling us to be in the world. Peace, love, hope, compassion, justice, mercy, community, inclusiveness, and belonging. So let's make sure we love and we love well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing up in weird ways too. Let's, let's, let's call it like we see it. But Lord, may we be, may we be part of the change that you would like to see in the world. May we not abdicate our responsibility to somebody else, to, to anyone else, any other institution. Let your church be the hope for the world because in us they can see you. And Lord, if we're not willing to do that, if we're too entrenched in a particular belief system or a particular ideology, Lord, wake us up and call us to something more, something much more than the delineations that we can create here on earth. So Lord, we're going to lift you up. We're going to praise your name. We're going to honor the call. We're going to listen to the voices of those around us. In your name I pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.